Hey, welcome to Jay Fonce's Ignorance, episode 21. I'm sitting here with uh, Sharon and Jim Hanna, my parents, and uh, we're going to talk about The Shack, which is this book and now a movie, a major motion picture, I believe they call it. Or is it not major? I don't know if it's a major motion picture. Significant, perhaps. Yeah. I don't know that it's the Hollywood major, whatever no. that definition is. Uh, by William Paul Young, the, the book's called The Shack. Uh, the, the first thing I want to do, though, is this might get a little ranty, so I apologize. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to tell the story about a guy that I met um, downtown. So every Sunday when I'm in Omaha, we do this uh, Food Not Bombs volunteer uh, food handout, food prep, food handout thing. Yeah, we've done that with you. Yeah. This gentleman walks up to me while we're serving and he says, oh, hey, what is this? Is this a church thing? And I'm like, no, this is non, uh, it's, it's not church-related. This is called Food Not Bombs, and I believe it was started in the 60s. And uh, in San Francisco, I think it started. And there's uh, Food Not Bombs operations all over the world. And the general gist of it is that, hey, we've got so much money being pumped into warfare. Wouldn't it be great if we took some of this money and instead fed people that need food. Yeah, let's do it. What what a concept. (laughs) So so that that got the conversation started, and um, it went into um, military necessity, and uh, he was saying, like I was saying things that to me seem obvious, like, hey, we've got 2,000 nuclear warheads in the U.S., or whatever the number is. I don't remember. It's 2,000, 4,000. Anyway, lots. And I said things like, well... It, it seems to me the military budget, like, we would be fine as a country just having, like, 80 nuclear weapons. Like, could we knock it down to, like, 80, which is still enough to kill billions of people, right? And it seems to me whatever good can possibly come from deterrence from 2,000 nuclear warheads, 4,000 nuclear warheads, could come from 80 nuclear warheads. Like, 80 to me sounds like a huge number. We Actually, kill. yeah, the United States has about 10,000, not all actively deployed, but we have about 10,000, as does Russia. So, yeah. So my argument, so my, to me, it's like a no-brainer that 80 is fine. And he, he counterpointed that, hey, well, you, you do have this first strike phenomenon, right? You have this thing where, okay, well, look, a rogue country or your enemy or whatever, if they can disable 90% of your nuclear warheads before you have a chance to use them, then the deterrence doesn't work, right? So if the if the theory is mutually assured destruction so that everyone's going to die and therefore no one's going to push the button, right, if that's the theory of deterrence, then it's not necessarily true that with 80 of them, if they, take out, if they can take out 90% of them somehow, it's not necessarily true that you can still destroy their entire country and therefore the deterrence doesn't work, right, because they, they're willing to attack you because they think they'll survive, right? And I'm like, really? With 80 of them? Even with 80 of them, right? Because, like, one wipes out Moscow, if it's Russia, right? Or wipes out Beijing or wipes out Shanghai, you know? You're killing tens of millions of people with one. One of them. So to me, like, 80 sounds like, holy crap. And I was just really surprised that this guy wasn't willing to even consider the fact that 10,000 or 2,000 active, whichever, whatever number of actively deployed ones, that it, it seemed like I couldn't move the needle on convincing this guy that maybe we have more than we need, right? Which to me just seems like holy. And I could be wrong. Like someone could explain to me, like this was a good argument. This whole first strike disabling thing doesn't work. I thought it was a good argument, and I was like, okay, you know, I I learned something, and that's great. Anyway, this conversation went on for forty five minutes, and it 
and towards the middle and end of it, like he was saying that it seems like nobody will uh, listen to him anymore on the college campuses because the college campuses are so politically correct now that he can't say anything. So he's down here and he has to talk to, and he's really glad to have like an intellectual conversation with somebody and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh yeah, great. I love talking about this stuff, but you know, it's, we're 45 minutes deep or 40 minutes deep into this. And through the course of this conversation, he started to say these really offensive things about, about gay people, about LGBT people, about Muslims. And I, I was like, I, I thought I was making progress because there was a 10 second period where I was like, well, isn't it possible that there are some good Muslim American citizens that are good Americans and they happen to be Muslim? And he paused for like 10 seconds and didn't say anything. And I thought, okay, this is my teaching moment, right? This is my make this guy think maybe because until you crack the door open, you can't have the conversation. Like I couldn't even crack the door open on the guy. And he was, so basically at the end of that, he gave me that, well, the vast majority of them are, you know, da, 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 da. and I was like, Oh God, this is terrible. Like I was so disappointed that I wasn't, didn't seem to move the needle on the guy. And then he mentions 45 minutes deep into the conversation that he's, uh, that he's a born again evangelist, something or other. And I was like, and he's like, let me give you these materials about Jesus, what Jesus says that we should live our lives. And, and I said to him, well, I was, you know, I'm atheist now, but I was born, I'm baptized into a Christian church. I have, I think decades of experience with, religion. Yeah. Right? Like both my parents are Christian minister were Christian ministers. Correct me when I screw this up. And I'm like, look, I'm not unfamiliar with Jesus and his teachings and Christianity and their teachings. I'm just not convinced by that, which is a whole different conversation. Yeah. And he's like, well, what church were you raised in? And I said, oh, well, okay. At the time I was baptized, it was the reorganized church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, which is, you know, them and the Mormons have a common ancestry in the history of the church. And he said, oh, well, you know, the Mormons aren't Christians. And I said, okay, I gotta go. And I was pissed <laughs> and I left. That was what, that, that was what ended the conversation is that he, he was passing judgment on a religion he's not even in. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, how do you... Like, to, to me, someone is religion X if they say they're religion X. Like, that's how to know. You ask them. You say, hey, what do you believe? And they tell you what they believe, and that's how you know what they believe. <laughs> Whatever they say they believe is what they believe. And I was, I was so mad that I felt like I wasted 45 minutes of my life on this guy. Mm. But I don't want to be like this closed-minded person that doesn't listen to people, that doesn't engage, that doesn't, you know, converse and debate. Like, I, I like I like the process of trying to figure out, okay, who's got the better argument here? Like, I enjoy that. It's like little mental ninja <laughs> gymnastics or whatever. And it, I, But I was angry at the end of that conversation because I felt like he engaged me in a 45-minute conversation under false pretenses. Like... His and this could be totally unfair to him, and you know I should have him on the podcast. But it, it seemed to me like forty-five minutes of me trying to move the needle on any of his opinions, and his answer was always no. What we have currently is the correct, whatever it is, like whatever that number is that we already have, which neither of us knew was the right number of nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. and we couldn't have fewer of them. You know, and I was like, what? What? 
<laughs> whatever the number currently is, we can't have fear. Because, like, George W. Bush slashed more nuclear weapons out of the arsenal than any president in history. And this guy's, like, hardcore Republican, and George W. Bush was a Republican, so you'd think. Well, Reagan Reagan almost did away with nuclear weapons altogether. You know, they had, they had an, almost reached an accord with the Russians to eliminate nuclear weapons. Yeah. Didn't quite make it. So well, he's but Republican, it, you know. So. It it sounds as if Jay, what what was most irritating for you was that it felt to you as if this gentleman had an agenda, which was to distribute to you some religious materials that he was thoroughly committed to, and he engaged you in this conversation about another subject just to reel you in so that he could present to you these materials. Bait and switch, they call that. <laughs> yeah, and I, it, I, I, I felt like he engaged me in conversation. By the end of that conversation where gay people are bad and Muslims are bad, and, and I'm like, what? Where did this? Because it, yeah. it was like a pretty normal kind of conversation and then it just like went off the rails. Mm. And I'm like, what is happening? And I'm, I'm listening to him for minutes at a time, waiting for my turn to speak, right? Because yeah. early in the conversation, it was a back and forth. Towards the middle of the conversation, he kept saying these things, and I was giving him these looks like, I don't agree, but he didn't stop. I mean, yeah. he was yeah. not engaging me anymore. Now he was, like, proselytizing his specific yeah. worldview. And I, I just, uh, I, I, I was so upset, and I don't know if this is unfair, but I, I, I mean, I, I feel like he, this, this guy wasted my time which makes me think oh well you know don't talk to people <laughs> you know it felt as if any dialogue had been laid aside and it was now a monologue he was delivering something to you yeah and he snuck in he snuck into the beginning of the thing as if we were it was know, going to be two, a conversation two open-minded people yeah mm-hmm. and i was just i was so upset by that because there was that was 45 minutes i could have been doing something else yeah right. that's so, kind of false pretenses it seems to me is, uh, so I had the. I hope you don't give up though on the idea of, of meaningful dialogue and conversation because I had an experience a while back where I was in exercising at the gym and there were a couple of fellows engaged in conversation just a few feet away from me, loud enough that you could hear. And it was all about uh, how awful Obama had been and how wonderful Trump's going to be and la-di-da and so forth. And I heard this for about 15 minutes and was trying to decide to myself, oh, am I going to engage these people? Because President Obama urged us to, you know, get off of Facebook and actually talk to people mm-hmm. <laughs> when he, that was his kind of farewell address. And I, I wanted to take that to heart. And so I thought, well, what the heck, I'll give it a go. So I got off my exerciser machine and kind of went over and said, you know, I couldn't help hearing your conversation but uh, uh, I want you to know I'm kind of like from the loyal opposition, but I'd be interested in kind of exploring some of the things that I overheard if you'd be interested at all. Mm-hmm. And without going into all the details, the long and short of it was that uh, for at least a half an hour, maybe longer, these two fellows were glad to engage with me. And, and, and I felt like that I understood a little bit more of their perspective at the end of it. And I think they understood more of my perspective at the end of it. And so I think the needle did get budged a little bit more towards the center, which is probably where more more of us need to kind of <laughs> nudge ourselves towards the center. I, I remember an old book that the Kleinbells wrote about marital um, counseling uh, called Meet Me in the Middle. Mm-hmm. And I, I, 
That'd be a pretty good motto. Well, we we just went downtown to uh, the library, and the author of the book, uh, the reunited, what was it, reunited states, reunited of states of America. What's his name? Gerzon, Mark Gerzon, G E R Z O N. So that, correct me if I'm wrong. My take on that presentation in that book uh, summarized is, hey. Uh, you know, we've got a really broken two-party system, and we need to engage all these different strategies to try to break out of this two-party deadlock where we're not getting anything done. Yeah, I think we'd recommend his book pretty highly because he has some practical suggestions for things that might be done, not just theoretical, you know, let's bring the reds and the blues together and make purple. I mean, he, he basically says, here, here are some practical things you can do in your community and so forth, so... And if I remember correctly, what he was saying is, look, it's not that you're trying to necessarily convince the other side at yes. all. Right. What you're trying to do is you're trying to be in a room with somebody and understand each other's perspective, even if you don't change. I got yeah. even if you don't change their minds. I got a super kick out of the fact that he said that. Look, I've been doing this work for 25 years full time, and the world has gotten worse. Yeah. <laughs> And it's, yeah. it's hard not to feel like I've wasted 25 years of my life. Well, and I think part of that is uh, what we're exposed to uh, through the media primarily because just this individual did a major conference uh, in which he invited congressional people. I think it was in the 80s. Uh, he invited all of the congressional people at the time to come to a, a convention in which the design was for them to sit down together, exchange views, and eventually hear each other, whether or not they agreed, but try to problem-solve out of their deeper understanding of each other. And it was fascinating because his opening remark, he invited 220 congressional people, came to this conference following his invitation, along with, their entire families, their spouses and their children. And the very first thing that he did was say, if you can switch your mentality to come first to conversations with each other as human beings, not as politicians, Republicans or Democrats, but come first as human beings and begin the conversation from that place. I, I just thought that was amazing. <laughs> and apparently that was successful uh, in that sense. The, the challenge was that when they got back into their political milieu, then you have to be a loyal Republican or a loyal Democrat, and your party doesn't really want, in some cases, you to be having that interchange because that weakens the adversarial position which you hope to be the victory and so so it's very challenging to try to maintain and sustain that sort of openness well i think he was he was accusing the political party leadership of open combat intentionally yes because that's how you win elections right. is you fight the other guy the other guy is yeah. terrible and that's how you win elections yes. and what yeah. a terrible so even if you can take 220 people and take them to Fort, where was it? Virginia, somewhere. Yeah, some great resort. And you have all of this progress, but then they walk back into Washington and they're like, well, we got an election to win, so screw that. Right. Right. I, I Like, what a broken system. And I keep, <laughs> I'm like, alternative vote? Damn it. If we could change the mechanics of the, I'm a mechanics guy, so if you change the mechanics of the freaking voting system and got, you know, yeah. preferential voting in or whatever. 
Uh, well, and I think even that uh, that example is a clue to the fact that we as human beings sometimes begin to take our power to allow each other to be human beings, and then in the face of, quote, higher authority of some sort, we lay that power down. Because me, as an ignorant person in how Congress really works, I think if there's 220 congressional people in the face of their key leadership saying, no, no, we're going back to polarization, would have said, not on our watch. You know, we've already started some problem-solving stuff that's really good, and this person across the aisle is now a person that I have some regard for, though I may seriously disagree with them. We've started a problem-solving process, and by golly, we're going to stick to it. Well, without being hopefully Pollyannish, I think that there would be some movement of the needle out of that experience, regardless of what your party ended up saying. If it was, if you saw beyond, like I saw beyond just these guys, and kind of like what a redneck <laughs> stance, you know, I saw that these these guys were willing to engage in conversation, and the, when we explored things, and I asked them, "So, do you really think?" and and laid out. That they're saying, no, nah, I, I don't really think that. You know, in other words, they weren't clear over where you might have thought just overhearing their conversation. When you press back a little bit, they sort of backed up a little bit and said, well, yeah, I, I don't agree with that or I wouldn't go that far. So when we discussed gun control, for instance, and I asked about fully automatic weapons, they were saying, well, yeah, that that doesn't make sense, you know, and as do most Americans think that, you know, it's just that there's a small, vocal, very powerful minority, which has a, a vested interest financially and is able to sway the whole entire conversation by virtue of intimidation, really, and fear. That's the other thing, you know, fear and intimidation. That's, those are power politics. Well, and, and, I have some exposure to the field of mediation, worked in that for a while, did study some training. Uh, and one of the principles is that when I come into conversation with another individual who is on what seems to be an exact opposite uh, position on a polarized issue, part of what I do to deepen that issue and to move out of polarization is I explore interests. So, for example, in the gun issue, if I am opposed to limiting gun control because I, or to limiting gun possession because I want to be absolutely sure that every human being in America has the right to defend themselves, has the right to hunt, has the right to be on their own property with possession, that's, that's my interest. I want freedom of ownership and opportunity to defend self. So if the person on the other side of the polarity says, my concern is, what about children in inner city who, and I don't have statistics, but who are gunned down on the streets of their cities because individuals who are irresponsible in their gun ownership have possession of guns and drive-by shootings kill innocent people, then my interest is, how do I protect those people? How do I protect those children and others? And then we begin to talk about, I understand your interest, you understand my interest, we understand each other's interest. 
how can we move toward at least some part of both your interest and my interest being met in the policies that we establish? So an example would be people continue to be able to have access to guns and the guns that they have access to are not automatic weapons, which are lethal at, at, uh, in a second, um, how can we move toward the meeting of both of our interests, knowing that our full interest may never be met in some cases, but at least we can move together cooperatively, collaboratively, and try to, out of our understanding of each other's interests, try to bring some satisfaction of those interests into the public policy. I think one of the things we'd have to address fairly early on is in, in our generation, there was the domino theory. So the theory was, gee, you know, if communism takes over Korea or, you know, name that country, then there'll just be a domino effect and bam, 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 you know, next thing you know, the whole world's going to be communist and then what? So I think today it's kind of like the slippery slope argument. So, man, if I, if there's any way that either the possession of any kind of a weapon or any kind of an ammunition or whatever is limited, then the whole thing is going to go down the toilet. You know, I just, I'll be totally defenseless. I'll have to absolutely no access to weapons or whatever. And somehow or another, we have to get past that mentality of all or nothing or slippery slope or the domino effect and say, come on, <laughs> let's, let's be reasonable here. You know, I, I, I honestly don't think the Democrats want to take away all the guns, <laughs> despite what some people say. You know, I don't think that was ever in the agenda, but I do think there's some interest in saying assault weapons are basically only good for killing a large number of people in a very quick time and very applicable to military situations. But just like we say, hey, you know what? We don't allow people to own bazookas because those are weapons of war, or hand grenades because those are weapons of war. So we're not going to have automatic weapons. How is that going to, you know, if the other restrictions about bazookas and hand grenades have not resulted in us being defenseless, how is it going to be that just because you say one particular part of firearms is going to be retained just for military or police use where the society says, yes, it's okay for you to have those weapons, but nobody else. How is that on earth going to <laughs> jeopardize the the right of someone to have a pistol or a rifle or a shotgun or, or whatever? Those sorts of things are not the things that are really the big concern. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, yeah, politics is a mess. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on to religion. <laughs> Did we want to say anything else about? It? You know, you know, when we were young people, Jay, back back in the let's see, fifties, early sixties, there was a saying abroad: never talk religion or politics. Yeah. That, should, that, should my, that should be the name of my podcast. Yeah, I'm starting to wonder if we haven't made a false pretense here uh, in terms of saying we were going to talk about the shack, and thus far we haven't said a single word about the shack. We well, we're only 25 minutes in. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I just, I, I, I thought that was, yeah, so sorry if I'm off topic. But, um, 
Did, anything else on the politics stuff or the? I mean, because I, I thought that was a good presentation down at the library downtown. Couple, oh yeah, a couple nights ago. I was really appreciative of that. Yeah, yeah. and and I bought. Gerson's book and intend to read it and apply some of the principles. Bought two of them. Got them autographed. Signed and everything. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> Couldn't tweeted, give one away. <laughs> I tweeted in credit to my 400 followers or whatever. So, hey, All right. Good stuff. Okay, yeah, so the the main thrust of this podcast, I think, if we haven't run out of steam yet, is, the, is this book called The Shack by William Paul Young. And I was driving back from Georgia... And I had been listening to Cervantes' Don Quixote for like 47 hours. So I made this mistake of like, oh, hey, I want to listen to Don Quixote. And on audible.com, they have like seven versions of it. And da 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 And they're all abridged. And I'm like, why would I want the abridged version? So I, you know, I went with one of the three unabridged versions. And it turns out it's like 47 hours. <laughs> That's why you want an abridged edition. And I'm like, holy crap. So I'm like, of course I want the unabridged version. And then I'm, I'm listening to it, and it's going on for hours about side stories of side stories of side stories. Because I don't know if you've read it, but there's all these stories within a story kind of that go way away from Don Quixote. Because Don Quixote, you know, picks up a book and says, oh, I remember this book. And it goes into the story of the book, and inside that book, someone picks up a book and they go into the story of that book and it's like, holy crap, it's been six hours since Don Quixote did anything. Down the rabbit hole. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so I was burned out on Don Quixote and uh, went on audible.com and just picked a book at random that was different from Don Quixote and I was listening to the beginning of this this book called The Shack and I was at like the 20 minute mark, I was like, oh boy, this is a Jesus book and I almost stopped listening to it because I'm like, oh crap, this is going to come from a specific, you know, everything's answered through, you know, miracle and you know, whatever. And it's like, this is it's not all about heaven. This is not going to be something that I'm going to, but I, I stuck with it and I really appreciate this book. This book is the first song, I'm 41 now, and this book is the first time in my life that if that, that the defense of the problem of evil has been presented in a way where you can have a loving God and and confront head-on the problem of evil. And I think, so So in this book, what happens is it's a father, there's a terrible tragedy, and the, the father um, is having a really, um, well, it's it's horrendous. I mean, the, 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 the first third of the book is just devastating. It's mm -hmm. terrible things happen to this poor guy. And then the next two-thirds of the book are he goes and uh, meets God. And uh, the so the book, I don't know how much I should outline, but there's the, it, the, the book holds it. Well, no. Okay, the important part to me was that my biggest problem with there's a loving God and he's omniscient and omnipotent and he's real and he's engaged with us is there's so much suffering in the world. Um, and it's not me. Like, I've had a great life. I don't feel, you know, bad for me at all. I think I've been very lucky. But the theory that there's this loving, all-powerful God out there, and yet all of these insanely atrocious things are happening, not to me, but to other people, when they haven't done anything wrong, that this is known in philosophy and religious circles and whatever as the problem of evil, right? Like, how do bad things happen to good people? 
and that sort of thing. And this has been debated for thousands of years. As long as religion's been around, the problem of evil has been a topic of conversation, right? This book is the first time in my life that they have met that challenge head on, and it's gut-wrenching. And it's not that God just snaps his fingers and everything's fine, because it's not. It's, it's painful. And the process of a loving God engaging with this guy who's gone through this terrible tragedy... And accepting that tragedy and accepting that God still loves this person and, and ultimately, well, spoilers, ultimately accepting forgiveness for the perpetrator of the horrible tragedy is just, I, I thought it was so insanely powerful. So I, I just wanted to talk to you guys about it because uh, I bought you guys a couple of copies of the book and uh, and you saw the movie too and the audiobook or? yeah we listened to your audio version on the way home from Texas and then we read the books that you gave to us and then we went to see the movie oh wow so you had a triple <laughs> triple header at the stadium <laughs> the moral of that story is long long road trips are good for books audiobooks <laughs> yeah <laughs> long ones so uh, like I I was very I, I don't think I believe in a loving God now just mm-hmm. from this one book like it, it, because to me the um, the power of the book is not necessarily in the literal truth of the Trinity from right. Christianity. Right. The power of the book is... So, like, if I was writing the same book, I mean, not that I could write a book, but if I was writing the same book and just left out the the Trinity part and just said, hey, it's this unknowable, you know, mm-hmm. omnipresent thing that mm-hmm. loves you, that's the power of the book, right? So that would be my... Yeah. Unitarian Universalist take on writing the exact same book, only uh, different. So I, I'm, I'm not. I mean, the author of this book is very into the literal Trinity. So there's literally mm-hmm. a God, and literally, right. well, this is you know, this. And if that's not how you read it, let me know. Well, yeah, that is how I read it, and and he's very interested in spelling out the relational dynamic between the members of the Trinity that they are loving and and. The, all that you know it's a very beautiful relationship that's depicted there yeah it's all relationship and it's all love right and he 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 confronts head on this terrible tragedy with relationship and love right and that's all there is to it right like that's the you know like at one point in the book Jesus says uh, uh, yeah, I'm not not big on a lot of that Christianity stuff <laughs> right yeah. yeah 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 and that you know Frankly, that's uh, a major issue and has been for some years for me is that sometimes I feel embarrassed to have people identify me as a Christian because to me that brings in the whole issue about Christendom as a whole and all the, the sins that it has to answer for in terms of the ways it's allied itself with empire and with with persecution of this minority and that minority and this gender and that gender and, and all that sort of stuff and the crusades and the, you know, that sort of thing, you know? So, yeah, uh, for some time I've kind of tried to define myself as a Jesus person. That is trying to get back to the core of who Jesus is and, and what does that mean to then be a disciple of Jesus or a follower of Jesus, try to live the way he lived. Uh, that's what that means to me. And, um, so, uh, I appreciated this depiction of of 
God for some of the reasons I think you mentioned. One is that uh, God is above all merciful in ways that we have historically not accorded God. The whole God of wrath thing, I think, still defines God. I know some people close to me that still are very much into that. You know, there's got to be, you know, you can't, mercy cannot rob justice. In other words, you know, God has a way that things are supposed to be, and if things are not that way, then somebody has to pay a price. So by substitution or atonement or, or ransom or some other theory of getting back into God's good graces, someone's got to pay because God is basically angry, wrathful. <laughs> and this depiction says, you know what? That's not who God is and never was and never will be, that God is mercy and love and forgiveness and I think what's the other dimension of it that I think is really important is to say that God rather than being all powerful in the sense that I'm in large and been charged it's more like God is uh, humble uh, God is not arrogant <laughs> uh, you know God is um, uh, not not filled with wrath or anger and, and that sort of thing but um is the, the, the whole force, life force that energizes the entire cosmos is one of love. And this love is not just simply distant. Love is somehow or another present. And so, like, when we suffer, it's not as if some distant deity is going, oh, poor you, that sort of thing. But this is a deity which is suffering with humanity. So, like, when I weep, God is weeping, and, and so forth. So so that is a quite different concept, I think, than many people who call themselves Christians uh, hold to. Well, and, and the, the book, for me, um, raises kind of a clean light on uh, what in our faith community is called agency, I think more generally might be called the opportunity of choice. So the... The understanding is that the nature of a God who is love, love is God, uh, provides freedom to persons in such a deep, deep way that persons are permitted, if you will, to choose to do horrific things, as was done in the book to this man's child. Um, But God does not abandon that individual in the midst of suffering. In fact, God, who is love, is suffering with that person. And the, the willingness to suffer with in such deep fashion in the desire that humanity will one day choose to to be compassionate and loving and in cherishing, nourishing relationship is just amazing to me. um, Yeah, I think a lot of the emotional power for me was no matter what's going on, there's a God that loves you and he's with you like you're never alone, mm-hmm. right? And that's, that's, not a, that's not a unique novel uh, thing that this book is saying. 
but the, the the personal it's all about relationship it's all about love and it's on a personal level with every individual that I, I think is a great argument for a benevolent omniscient omnipotent God and how the problem of evil rea- interacts you know when bad things happen this is how this is cohesive yeah. this is how this idea of God is cohesive it looks like this mm-hmm. and I, I was just amazed because I've never I've never heard because you know a, a lot of my rejection of that theory is based on my anger about other people's suffering yeah and yeah. there's a lot of anger in this book there's a lot of oh yeah a lot of oh, vitriol yeah. Yeah, I mean I would have I would not have been as easy on God as this guy was when <laughs> <laughs> he confronts God it would have been a lot more calamitous yeah. because he kept reining himself back in because it's God and I would have been like well fuck, this is God he can handle it <laughs> he knows what I'm going to say anyway so bam you know I would not I would have unleashed on God in that guy's place but I submit Jay, the other reason why Mac the, the primary figure in the book does not in, unleash on God in the way that you're suggesting is that from the very moment of encounter, Mac senses, and throughout the time with the three persons of the Trinity as they're portrayed, he feels this this incredible love for him that he has never before in his life experienced. He experiences that in the midst of, of this <laughs> this triumvirate of amazing beings. Um, so there's the side of him that is still furious at what's happened and is furious at God for allowing that to happen. But on the other hand, he senses the, 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 the incredible unfathomable love that's extended to him so deep in him he's struggling with how can this be you know how can how can this evil be permitted by this being who i'm experiencing as so loving so i think that's the other the other reason that his his anger uh is um it's beginning, his anger is beginning to be soothed yeah. um, because of the experience that he's having of the exact opposite of a vengeful, wrathful, harm-doing, malevolent being that he has imaged God to be because of his life circumstances. Yeah, I mean, the intellectual part of my brain that wants to tear this apart says, oh, I'm being drugged, right? Like, I'm walking into this cloud of of God is good goo, and it's affecting my brain, and it's artificial and Mm. attack. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, when when drugs work, they work, so you don't feel that anymore. (laughs) You don't think about, you know, but I'm sitting there undrugged listening to this Mm -hmm. book, thinking, oh, man, tear into this guy. (laughs) Yeah. You know, yeah, why, yeah. why are you holding back out yeah. of respect for this? For I mean, it's God. You don't have to hold back. <laughs> it's God. Well, it's interesting you say it that way because that, that basically is what the book of Psalms is all about. So 
so a lot of the book is uh, of the Bible is uh, God revealing God's self to humanity, but the Psalms is probably the most human book in the book of Psalms is probably the most human book in the Bible, and it's all filled with lament and allegations and anger and why have you abandoned me and what's with this you know it makes no sense God and on and on and on you know that, that sort well, of well is God responding there. is God replying and telling well is he it, usually at the himself? end of the psalm the psalmist will come around to a, a perspective after having laid it all out there I'm not mad anymore uh, I, you know, I, well <laughs> no, I no no I don't yeah. think that's it <laughs> Sometimes, it's more of a more always. of a more of a sense that I nonetheless I trust I trust you I trust that even though I don't understand this there's a benevolence in it there's a goodness in it and that's kind of where it usually but, okay but it's around. not a back and forth it's not God standing there mm. explaining no himself. no this is like this is basically the human crying out going what the hell? <laughs> this makes no sense and I'm mad as heck and I can take it no oh, more well so I, I submit that the shack by William Paul Young is better than the book of Psalms in the Bible because yeah, this is powerful. an actual dialogue between four well three well two or four <laughs> whatever it is right you know it's an actual back and forth yeah uh, examination of yes. right. this person had this experience how can there be a loving God yeah. And boom, it's a train wreck. It's it's yeah. head-on train wreck, and that's exactly, you know, in my head, what that would be. <laughs> so probably the closest in the, in the scriptures that, that would come would be the book of Job, where Job is, you know, laying it out there, and God is actually responding to him and, and all that sort of thing. But, but the, the, the book of, the response of God in the book of Job is nowhere comparable no. To the the response of God is portrayed in the shack. That's true. You, you, you mentioned early on that uh, you'd run into this uh, fellow who's evangelical, and and he was trying to whip it on you with the track that explained everything and all that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I think I, I I don't know. I haven't done any research on this, but I would guess that a lot of evangelical people are not going to be too pleased with this view of this presented of God in in the shack. Because it's it's just too all merciful. It's just too. There's nothing you have to do whatsoever. See, for most evangelicals, unless there's one way, Jesus, and unless you profess the name of Jesus aloud, out loud, mm-hmm. that's the only way you're going to make it into the hereafter, into heaven. Period. Yeah. And and so this is just so opposite that you know. Yeah. In in the audiobook <laughs> after the book. There's a bunch of interviews with the author, and the author wrote this book for his family and friends and handed it out, and people wanted mm-hmm. copies and more copies and more copies. And it was like, oh, maybe I should get a publisher. And he went to all the religious publishers and said, hey. And they said, whoa, no, no, no. This is not a good religious book. I believe right? that. So he's like, it's not? It's all about God. So he goes to the secular publishers and he says, hey, check out this book. People seem to really like it. And all the secular publishers are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, this is way too much Jesus stuff. You can't have all this Jesus stuff. Yeah. Right? And so he, he was literally trapped in the gap between being told it's heresy, uh, you know, by the by the religious publishers and being told it's way too Jesus-y by the, you know. So they end up making their own publishing house. And now they've sold like four million copies of it or whatever. And all the publishers are like, hey, why can't we publish your 
rework of the book or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, because he jerks made me set up my own publishing. Yeah, it says on the cover, the number one New York Times bestseller, <laughs> over 18 million copies in print. Yeah. The Shack. Where that was before the movie. Fronts Eternity. So they probably sold another 20 million. Oh yeah. my gosh, yeah. <laughs> well, and I think the other reason why, why many persons who are devout Christian persons would have difficulty with this is the whole notion of a God who limits God's self, mm-hmm. who, who says, my desire for the human species to, to ultimately choose to be in loving relationship to me and to each other is so deep and so pervasive that I will literally suffer with them everything that I have to suffer because of the choices that they make to diminish themselves and, and um, harm and, and, and bring harm upon each other. I will, ex- I will go through all of that with them. So that because I am convicted that there will come a day when they will choose to love each other and to love me as I love them. And I think that's the, the often hidden depth of the story of Jesus' death. The story of Jesus' death, in my understanding, says that Jesus could have evaded the crucifixion had he chosen to do so. The power was within him, whether it's supernatural power or the power of escape or not going into the temple and making a big fuss, not pissing off the the powers that be. He walked into that. He stood for the the poor who were being oppressed by the temple system he walked in there eyes wide open, knowing that he was going to get nailed up to that tree, uh, because that's what happened to to people who ran against the system. But he walked in there, and the the understanding of the scripture, the New Testament scripture, is that at his death, he literally experienced all of the suffering and the harm of the entire human race throughout the history of the human race, and did that willingly. Uh, it doesn't take a little measure of love to do that. I think kind of since we're in the Easter season and people will be thinking about crucifixion and so forth, I think it's, it's to me it's important to just put in a little postscript there which, which uh, talks about the fact that what Jesus did on the cross you know, was not to satisfy some distant, wrathful deity on a, a throne somewhere that had to be placated somehow or another and was going to somehow or another be placated by suffering. <laughs> That's just, I mean, you know, I, the whole thing just does not hang together for me when I when I equate it to the life and ministry of Jesus as best I can understand it with the you know with all the, with all what that means of you know understanding the context of the time and understanding the whole writing process and translating from one language to another over a period of several thousand years and that sort of thing you know I understand that my view of who Jesus 
is is necessarily limited. But nonetheless, taking the overall accounts of the four Gospels, trying to really say, well, what did Jesus actually do and say as best we can? And of course, we know that, <laughs> that there were some people who added a few things and changed a few things undoubtedly and so forth. But still, what, what you get is a picture of a person who, if, above all, was in, inclusive and loving. Someone who who kids were looked down on. So he said, hey, don't keep those kids from me. Come on, let them play. You know, uh, women were looked down on. And so he was reaching out to women all the time, the woman at the well and asking her for a drink of water, totally unheard of in his generation. So uh, he, he reached out to uh, even lepers the who were going, the lepers, crazy people. Right. People running around in the, that they, they banned uh, in, into the cemetery because they were demon possessed or whatever. He, but on the other hand, he also associated with and loved people who were tax collectors, the most, one of the most hated groups of the time as, you know, like IRS of 2,000 years ago, you know. <laughs> and and lawyers, oh my gosh, you know, hang around lawyers and, you know, go eat with them, go to the homes of Pharisees or, or interact with Pharisees. And uh, he had some hard things to say to some of those people, no question about it, you know. So you can't say it's gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know, that doesn't really fit the guy that went into the temple and overturned the tables and said, hey, you know what, you turned this house of God into a den of thieves, and I'm, I'm, I'm upset about that, you know. He called a spade uh, a spade. Right, but but nonetheless, I, I think, by and large, the, the message of Jesus is God is love. Or as this book says so beautifully, I think, you know, it's like Papa. And when when you look at the meaning of the of the way Jesus addressed God in in his prayers, it was kind of like Daddy. If you took the Aramaic and translated it, it kind of comes out like Daddy. It's a Abba. It's a Abba Abba Father is a is a term of of uh, endearment. endearment and you know close intimacy, all that stuff. That's not suggestive of of a person who is like kowtowing to some distant formidable deity it's 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 just totally opposite that and and it's hard for people to grasp that or to accept that yeah for years i've been had one sermon basically you are beloved put it on my license plate preached it three weeks ago i mean um i think it just boils down to something so elemental that that at the heart of the cosmos and everything beyond that that we don't even have understand uh, begin to grasp that, that that energy which is causing this conversation and allowing this conversation which is has to do with the trees outside and the grass and this table and it's in and above and around about and through all things energizing all things making all things interdependent and interconnected all things basically one there is no self and other ultimately there's just like this there's just life <laughs> and which is love and there's all this brokenness and division and harm and all that unquestionably in the world but ultimately it's my faith and belief uh, Lord I trust help thou my distrust <laughs> it's my my hope faith and belief that, that, that ultimately good is going to prevail that there's there's a benevolent a benevolence in the heart of everything and and I'm 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 part of that. I'm not, I'm not a part of it. I am part of that in some way, which is kind of humbling and uplifting all at the same time. It's hard to talk about stuff. You're starting to get into kind of mystical <laughs> stuff when you get into this. And it's, I, I contend it's not, 
if it's maybe it's not rational, but neither is it irrational. To me, it's maybe super rational, <laughs> like a little. It's, it's it doesn't it's not idiocy or or random firings that actually hangs together, but not in a way we can fully understand any more than we can understand dark energy or dark matter, which comprises ninety percent apparently of the of the universe which really guides and, you know, directs and affects and everything else, but we don't know anything about it. So anything that I said here this morning, I want to say it like in the deepest sense of humility. I really, I don't know. I, I trust, you know, have some yeah. faith, but I, I don't know. And, and I'm starting to be okay with that. You know, it used to be, I really wanted to know, you know, like the fundamentalist, you know, I used to be pretty fundamental. And and I, I used to be a very right-thinking person. There's a right way to think and a wrong way to think. And, you know, I think Sharon's always saying when she married Mr. Right, she didn't realize how right I was always going to be. <laughs> Thought you were going to be. Oh, I, no, always was. <laughs> well, and, and the, other, the other thing that I think the Shack does so powerfully is, and, and yet in some ways very subtly, makes the point that when we are in relationship, more than our thinking process is engaged. Relationship is not and ought not to be devoid of intelligence or rationality or thinking, but relationship is also... Um, <laughs> intuitive and um, risking and unknowing, you know, I've been married to your dad for 47 years and there are many, 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 many things that I understand about him and 10 times as much that I don't understand about him. But he and I have been in deep loving relationship for 47 years because it's about more than just understanding him. It's about living life with him on a day-to-day -day basis. The crappy stuff, the good stuff, moving through that with him and struggling with my, <laughs> my knowing sometimes and not appreciating and other times my lack of knowing what in the world is going on with him. So it's head and heart. Um, that's relationship. Yeah, I think one of the terms for God was mysterium tremendum and fascinatiums. I don't know how you say it, and fascinating. So it's like it's a mystery and it's fascinating. But you know what? It's it's mystery of the capital M. It's not like a mystery like, like you're going to resolve like in a TV show, you know. So at the end, it's all resolved. The mystery's solved. Well, I don't think that's, in my way of thinking, my capacity is, is a, in time and space is so limited to, I'm never going to understand it, but I say questions really whether not whether I'm going to understand it, it's whether I'm going to trust it. Am I going to, you know, there's a scripture that says, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Uh, this was after a father's son was healed, you know, I think it was. But my, my take on that is, for me personally, is more, Lord, I trust, help thou my distrust. Mm -hmm. Trying to grow in a sense of, Relatedness, interdependence, connectivity to this force, whatever it is. I mean, uh, I'm such a loss for words as to how do you, we call it God or 
the yeah. supreme being. I mean, so many so many religions have so many different names for it. I think they're all pointing to the same awareness, and there have been a few awakened individuals throughout human history that have really gotten more closely, you know, understood that, more experienced it more closely than others. And of course, most of those folks started religions, you know, <laughs> which have since layered on barnacle after barnacle after barnacle until some of these ships are sinking and. Thank God, you know, I, you know, I just, I, I, I don't know. People right today uh, are really concerned about what's going to happen to the Christian Church, and and to me, that's all about Christendom. And I don't know. Twenty years ago, I started reading Douglas John Hall, who's a Canadian theologian, and he says, you know what? It's all Christendom is going to become disestablished. That means that it's not going to have the same critical key role that it has had in the society in the past, you know, where you, you quote a scripture and every, basically everybody in the, in, in the room would understand what that scripture, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, well, that would have said something to everybody like 50 years ago. Now maybe it's going to say something to 10%. I don't know what the percentage are, but you know, it, it, so some people are fearful that that being disestablished means that the influence is going to wane but Douglas John Hall, myself, and I think some others are hopeful about that, that because all these barnacles got added on to religion, so to speak, if those barnacles fall away, you're going to get back more to the essence of who Jesus is and how Jesus lived his life. And it's, it, is, it doesn't have to do with a lot of ritual and ceremony and, and a lot of things that have been barnacled on to, uh, to churchianity. <laughs> and so what is, what is this emerging church going to to look like if there if it if it even called a church what is this uh, so i don't I'm, I'm more hopeful about that than i am despairing so, so mom the the god depicted in the book the shack mm-hmm. does that jive with the god you believe in in several ways yeah i i think the key ways are the the portrayal in the shack and uh, I'm going to just, uh, it sounds to me like you've been holding back on being too specific about what the book says, but in the book, uh, one of the persons of the three person God entity is an African American woman, um, who, who is, is, my grandmother, I remember my grandmother always cooking for her family, always wanting to nourish her family. And she did that largely through food, but she also did that through touch. She did that through um, facial expression. She did that through drawing you into an embrace, uh, through her gentle uh, pet names and things like that. So that's one of the persons of the Trinity. The other person is Jesus, who is a Middle Eastern male, um, young, probably mid-30s, um, who, who is um, deeply committed to openness and honesty and directness and um, is the brother that all of us, uh, I think, intuitively dream of having, who receives us as a companion and then and then there's the character who's a female asian female um who it plays the the role of the the spirit 
of Christ, of God. And I love this portrayal because she's depicted in the book as constantly in motion and swirling and moving and colorful and creative and uh, just overflowing with life and energy. And so those, those three together are not three. They are one. And their sensitivity to each other and their affection for each other and their deference to each other and their giving themselves to each other is so total and full and complete that for me that's that's the best depiction <laughs> of Trinitarian theology that I've ever been exposed to in my life. So what, what didn't jive with you? You, you um, said mostly it jived with you, but not... Yeah, um, I'd have to I'd have to think about that more. Oh, okay. Well, I, yeah. I'll ask Dad. So, okay. Dad, the God you believe in is that depicted accurately in the shack? Yes, I, I believe it is. And I, you know, whereas Sharon kind of picked up on the image of God because of her grandmother's experience, I didn't have a grandmother of that closeness and relationship. So, my my depiction with my uh, connection was more strong with the depiction of the spirit, which was, which as Sharon said, was always changing, moving, and beautiful and dynamic and all that sort of thing. So my own encounter with God when I was like nine or ten years old, whatever, I went to a youth camp and and they had this little quiet prayer time and had us go off by ourselves. And so I went and sat under a tree overlooking a lake, tried to pray, and had this warm it's what John Wesley called being strangely warmed I guess and I was in the Wesleyan context at the time so I had this warm sense of God's love just pervading my whole being and and I'd never because my own daddy died when I was four years old uh, I hadn't experienced that love in quite that way uh, and so it was a beautiful experience so I kind of relate more to to that aspect of the, of the Trinity if you will I, I think that there's there's really cool author interview where they talk about the name that they gave the the I was trying to look it up while you guys were talking. Sarah Yu. Sarah Yu is that it? Yeah, it's called Sarah the U. Surprise Wind or whatever. What was the the, um, the, the literal translation of Sarah Yu yeah. is like the wind that refreshes or something. Yeah. He has a yeah. beautiful yeah. explanation about that where that name came from. Yeah. or something. In in the biblical language, Ruha means breath. And so the wind of the spirit, and of course at Pentecost, that's the, the time when uh, in the in the Christian church the Holy Spirit really came down and visited all the people. That was that's called. Uh, I think Elois is the term, the Hebrew term that's used. But uh, let me see if I can find it in the book here. Uh, yeah, and I can look it up in Lincoln later. But yeah, so yeah, so for you the, the most strong connection was the spirit mm -hmm. part of the trinity that that felt very real yeah. and right yeah, that's cool yeah because uh jesus gave the promise when he when he knew he was going to die just in the days before his death he promised that there would be a, a holy spirit or a comforter which which and to me i came to learn that comforter doesn't miss just mean oh pat you on the head it's all going to be okay jimmy it also means cum forte forte meaning strength 
fortissimo, you know, the word from which get the word fort and fortissimo and fortitude and all those things. So the comforter is, yes, it's about sometimes you need consolation because you're all beat up, you know, and you're discouraged or sad or whatever. But on the other hand, you also need strength, you know. So to me, I've always appreciated that for a long time. I've appreciated the idea of the comforter and the spirit. And, I, and that's how I encounter when I would, the divine most frequently is I'll just have this sense of, of connectivity or, or, or beauty or splendor or, or, or relationship or something that, is, you know, that, that, that's where I sense God most. Yeah, I think I know, Jay, what it is for me that, uh, that I wish were included in the book. I wish that there was a volume two that talked about how Mac now goes back having had this amazing revelatory experience, this this personal, deep, deep, personal, real, powerful encounter with the Godhead. Uh, but book two for me would... Uh, would share his journey then when he goes back into the next chapter of his life in which he has this experiential knowledge but he now is living day to day going to work and being with his family and being with his friends and being with the people who irritate the crap out of him and being angry because uh, some jerk has done you know, road rage and and being angry because six children were shot dead in the inner city, and so how does how does he now go back to his day to day life, carrying in his being this, as I said, revelatory experience of the nature of God, but he now is is invited charged to continue to live out his life in relationship to this being that he can't see clearly anymore and he can't touch and he can't hear uh, literal words being spoken to him and uh, you know he has to he has to wait for answer and he has to ponder for answer he can't he doesn't just speak the question and a voice speaks back to him that's the nature of of living in relationship to God for most of us. You know, uh, even when we have those those encounters that that give us clues about what is this ultimate love that surrounds us and enfolds us day to day, uh, we're we're. <laughs> We're blind people feeling in the dark because it's just not that smack you in the face with it uh, as the experience that he had. So I want book two, um, Paul, you know, <laughs> Paul Young, uh, William Paul. <laughs> right. On their website, there's a bunch of books, and I don't know if those uh-huh. are sequels or if those are just memoirs or whatever about yeah. writing the book or whatever, but there are a bunch of books on the website, so maybe one of them is what you're asking for. Oh, good. Or maybe he's writing it right now. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, in, 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 in my life experience, that is both the, uh, the, the angst and the joy, because when you live out your life 
trying to listen to what you think is being communicated to you by this ultimate love. When you live out your life trying to make your choices harmonize with that, and yet it's always, okay, the best that I can understand, the best that I can discern is this. But for me at least, it's always Do I know absolutely for certain, without a doubt, without any hint of hesitation, that I'm moving in harmony with this core of love at the center of the universe? No. I don't know for sure. I'm doing the best I can. You know, and I'm trusting, as your dad said earlier about trust, I'm trusting that... The communication continues to come my direction, that the love continues to flow my direction, but I'm reaching out for it through a glass darkly, the scripture says. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm stretching for this partnership, this relationship, this being with that Mac in the book had, <laughs> you know... All the lights on, all the curtains gone, all the it was there, uh, and I've I've been close to that on an occasion or two in my life when I thought, "Yep, God is here right now with me," but most of my life has lived in trust, um, discerning both with my intellect and with my heart the best I can. Now, what is the good way? What is the, what is the way of love ultimately? I think one thing that happens, uh, at least this is my experience, uh, when you try to live in that way of love, is that the, the the judgmental aspect of yourself really diminishes, because you, I think when you, in this depiction of God in the shack, there's there's not condemnation, so there's no fear and no guilt, which is driving your life. So you're free of having to, you know, impose your <laughs> uh, right thinking <laughs> <Yikes>. on other <laughs> people. You know, well, I, don't, I don't think in this book. I don't think God is giving license to people to go murder. No, no, not oh, at all. My not. goodness, heavens, no, God forbid. <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, you know, God is not saying, you know, what at heart I am wrathful. And so when I come back again in the second coming, as Jesus comes back, you know, I'm going to do it right this time. You know, I was just kind of, that was the preliminary Jesus, gentle, meek and mild. Now I'm going to come back as the wrathful warrior, and I'm, by gosh, going to set things straight. Well, in this book, he's also not stopping the next murder. He's not stopping the next murder. That's right. And that's, you know, this this book for me doesn't solve the problem of evil. No. But it's the best head-on train wreck of how could there be a loving God and the universe that we live in simultaneously. How could that possibly be true? This is the best the best run at that I've ever experienced. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, Yeah, I really like that. I really, really, really appreciate that dimension of the book that I, because it really helps me to express some things that I've been pondering for quite some time about, you know, so what, does that, what does that suggest, for instance, about uh, nonviolence? You know, 
as, as a way of life and, and so forth. So there's some real profound implications of this book if you say that God is love and God is, God is willing to suffer on behalf of others rather than inflict suffering. Well, <laughs> think about that. Yeah. And what would that mean for one's day-to-day life? If that's the way God is, and that's the way we are called to be, as we are created in the image of God, and insofar as we recognize that, what about that? You know, but it doesn't. To me, what I like about it is that it doesn't then say, "Well, you just become passive." You know, whatever happens, happens. No, that's not the Jesus model. Right. Jesus actively, yet nonviolently, resisted. That's why they killed him. It wasn't if he just got around healing a few people and doing some miracles or whatever. They wouldn't have killed him. The reason they killed him, it was a, it was a capital punishment. They, the, the state and the religion executed him because he threatened their world. You know, Caesar's king, not Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and we, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so forth, we, the temple system, will tell you when to sacrifice and what to sacrifice and, and what's clean and what's dirty. We're the we're in charge, you know. So, so you have this whole depiction of a of, of Jesus, which is just sets that aside. Says, you know, there's a higher law than these laws. You're asking me, what are the laws? You know, what's the greatest laws? You know, like at that time there were hundreds of laws which people had to observe to be good Jews, which is what Jesus was, a good Jew. And uh, he said, well, hey, <laughs> there's really just two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, might, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Kind of like three, actually. And those are the those are the golden rule. That's the the means by which everything else is you know would be measured. That that's it. You don't need to look for everything else. All these other things about cleanliness and rituals and and la di da. Those are so so secondary, tertiary, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, as to be insignificant. That's not what it's about. It's about right relationship. It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of right relationships, which to me infers recognizing our absolute interdependence and oneness of everything, including creation. So we don't go around despoiling nature and all of its wonders and beauties and so forth any more than we would do something to harm our own body, cut cut our arm off. Mm -hmm. Bulldoze the top of a of a mountain to get the coal that'd be the parallel you know that'd be like cutting off your hand you know so you know ultimately so that's I think that's the place we're being drawn to to, to recognize this oneness and this harmony of, of of all things in love yeah I think like as a prescriptive analysis what is the what is God in the shack telling us to do I think that it touches a lot of subjects and doesn't really answer prescriptively any of them like that. <laughs> so when it comes to pacifism versus active um, engagement, whatever, whatever, it, he touches on that. Like the Jesus character touches on that, but doesn't right. really answer the question. Like, like, so there's no, there's no prescriptive yeah. uh, other than what you said about the fundamental. Hey, these are the fundamental things, and everything else is when right. addressing. Yeah. So they didn't, they didn't really know about genetic engineering. <laughs> yeah. So. There's well, nothing about that per se in scripture or in this book, but the principles are there. You know, he's thinking, well, what's the best good for the most people? There is one thing that's really concrete that I really love about this book. I, I love it for its just gentle simplicity. In this, in the book, 
the god figure, uh, says to Mac, I'm especially fond of you. And as the story unfolds, the, the god figures say the same thing about every other person who's, who comes to attention within the book, including the murderer of Mac's child. And you know, when, when I try to take that in and I say, well, wait a minute, well, yeah, I can understand how God's especially fond of me. I mean, I'm basically a good person. I, I'm honest. I pay my bills. I'm pretty kind to people. You know, I'm a good person. But how can God be especially fond of Charles Manson or Adolf Hitler or some of the horrific figures of, of, that we know about of history that are walking around in our world everywhere today? How can God be especially fond of that person? And I go, wait a minute. If that's true, then the person that I encounter day to day, that frankly I could do without big time, you know, if, if, if my path crosses that person and I go, yeah. Um, if if my memory says, you know, God's especially fond of that person, that person's ultimate worth is as, as deep as yours, then that brings me up short. And I, I have to say to myself, if that person's ultimate worth is as deep as my own, I must respond to them in a different way than if I was free to think they were the scum of the earth. Yeah, that, come, that came home as recently as a few days ago when I was in the jury selection process, you know, being asked to render a, a decision about a, a 17-year-old who was accused of having killed someone. And so as I looked at him, I tried to look at him not just with my preconceived notions and my own racial bias or my age bias or my culture bias or my privilege bias in comparison and in contrast to his, but to try to say, wow, what? <laughs> is, is this guy really irredeemable? Is he hopeless? Or is he, is he too beloved of God? It changes your, your perspective uh, tremendously. And it's not easy to do, very, very, very challenging to do. Yeah, that's a huge, you know, from my my ethical system and perspective, I guess it's 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 a utilitarian analysis of is this person going to contribute to society or not? Right. And that's the judgment call. Is society? I mean, here we are living in a society, mm-hmm. and we can't let people run amok. Right. Exactly. And uh, and I, and I think I think that's really a, a separate question for me, Jay, and, and in fact um, goes to the heart of a human responsibility and opportunity because there are people that, that are horrifically harmful to themselves, to society, uh, and if they are in fact ultimately of worth 
then then we, the human family, have a much different um, opportunity and responsibility in the way that we interact with each other. You know, how how do we um, redeem saluted Christian word? But how how do we reclaim? I guess how do we claim? Sure. That's better language. How do we claim the best in each other, and how do we bring that out? And you know, uh, how do I fashion society and my daily life in a way that that gives people the best chance to be as good as they allegedly are somewhere down deep inside of them, even how, no matter how rotten they appear. Uh, on the surface, I was yeah. I was encouraged just at breakfast this morning by the conversation about our, our friend has uh, an acquaintance who's a bit, who's in prison for fifteen years, and in the process of that, he's learning a trade, which he didn't have before, and he's also in uh, group sessions, group therapy sessions, and so forth for for what he did in terms of anger management. It's, it was his particular issue, and so that's encouraging. Now I didn't realize that there was that much effort reclamation, if you will, in the penal system. I thought it was just basically pretty much punitive. And so I, I, I understand that I need to... So you told the judge that, so you got thrown off the jury. <laughs> well, <laughs> there was that, too. But <laughs> I just could not bring myself to sentence a 17-year-old to a 35-year prison sentence. So, yeah, I was not selected for the jury. <laughs> It's interesting for me because I, I know you guys are kind of, hey, God is in and among all things and through all things or whatever. Um, people that believe in an external God and do lots of good things, I, I feel like they're selling themselves short because I feel like all of these things that we value and cherish about being able to cooperate and get along on the planet are in the people. Like the people are... And, and, and it's not to say in a, in a boastful way, like these people are good people, you know, as individuals, that's not what it is. It's, hey, you know, as a species, cooperating is good for all of us. And we've domesticated ourselves as a species. And here we are. And here's how we get along. And the way to get along is through all of these modes of behavior. And if we'd had all these modes of behavior, we'd be dead. Right. So yep. wouldn't it be <laughs> wouldn't it be nice if we can just celebrate so I guess this is the, uh, what's this called? This is called the humanist. I guess this is the humanist mm-hmm. ethos where yeah. they're saying, hey, look, it's in humanity. You don't need an external thing. Yeah. And I know you two don't believe in an external thing. You believe it's an omnip- omnipotent, or sorry, omniscient. Omnipresent. Omnipresent. Thank you. So many it's not omni. <laughs> so you, you guys believe it's an omnipresent thing. So it's in you and it's everywhere else. So it's mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, but yeah, I, I find it, really fascinating when people say, look, I don't have the power, but God does, and I believe that, and therefore I'm doing this thing. And I'm like, huh, okay. Because to me, that whole exchange of credit is completely unnecessary. It's like, look, you're suffering, and you're doing these things, and we're here, we're not alone. We're, we live in a, in, a, in a culture of people that are trying to be supportive and trying to be helpful and you know so and for me Jay that's 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 the part of the uh, kernel of wisdom in the Jesus story because for me the the Jesus account 
says it is in you. Now, Jesus was, according to a standard Christian belief, Jesus was fully human. And Jesus said, come and live this way of life, which implies to me that whatever it was that was inherent within the human Jesus is inherent within every human. Uh, and so... Um, well, that's the implication of calling ourselves brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of God, is that even as Jesus was able to live in that intimate relationship, so can we. Someone does horrendous things, and we put them in jail, and we let them out again, and they do horrendous things again, and they put them in jail, and we let them out again, and we do, they do horrendous or whatever. At some point, all three of us in this room are going to say, nope, you're done. Yeah, you, I, you I can't. think society has a right, I think, and responsibility to protect itself from people who cannot contain themselves, you know, can't so you, control themselves. So you guys accredit that the, the attempt to let people, you know, the, the we want to let people uh, be better, right? We want to be f f forgive people and whatever. Mm -hmm. And so this desire to not just, you know, put them away and throw away the key immediately on the first deal, right? Um, for you guys, you accredit that to this God-forced loving thing and these people or whatever. And I, I think that, I think on my, my take on it is, uh, lacks all that, but we end up in the same spot. Like we end up at the same conclusion. Like, mm -hmm. like I'm going to say, oh yeah, well give him a shot, give him a shot. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I think we end up, so it's, it's, it's interesting. I think the, the only difference in our behaviors is the accreditation of, why we're giving it a shot. Yeah, right. I've, I've, I've been reading in that book, uh, Good Without God. It makes a lot of sense to me, you know. And there's even a, a branch of Christianity called Christian humanism, you know, that tries to blend those concepts together, you know, which I, I find fascinating. So, What is Christian humanism? Well, I don't know fully, you know. I'm, <laughs> I'm just, just trying to understand it myself. But, but it, it, it has to do with, I think, with the idea that... Uh, with the human potential is that we can grow into Christ-likeness, which of course is something that Jesus himself said, you know, that basically that if we, if we attune ourselves to the Holy Spirit, we will have the mind of Christ will be in us, which, which says in essence that we, our thinking would be akin to Jesus' thinking, which was akin to God's thinking and all that, you know, so that you have the potential of, of uh, not being torn all the time between this and that and the other thing, you actually would, would just have a oneness of, uh, thought and, and action, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. I don't understand yeah. how, that if, if Jesus is still supernatural, yeah. then I don't understand what Christian humanism means. That's just Christianity. Jesus is supernatural. So, yeah. You know. Well, I, I don't know either. But, I'll tell you more about it when I know more about it. But the, I think the, the idea is that what it means to be fully human is what Jesus is. And so that potential is within us as well. I, I don't know how to yeah. say it better than that at this point. <laughs> like, like all this stuff is, for me, I, it feels to me in my brain that, look, I can just drop 90% of this supernatural accreditation and system. And it's just so much simpler. It's just so much simpler to think, oh, hey, we're humans on planet Earth. 
let's get along, you know? And it, for, for me, it's like, oh, wow, oh, thank goodness. I'm just, <laughs> like, I'm just relieved that I don't have to understand and right. explain these, yeah. these godlike phenomenons because there isn't a god and, you know, problem solved. I hear it, you know? And I, so for you, it's, because, it's like what works, basically. So, like, in other words, if it's more pragmatically effective for people to cooperate than to compete, well, that makes it good, correct? And so we, we should pursue those cooperative things rather than just the strictly competitive things because that's because there's a utilitarian way in which that's going to ensure the survival of the species which we suppose is a good thing but you have to keep peeling the onion and go back to well why is it even important that the species does survive you know if there's not some something inherently good about that or if you will yeah and and how do you what what argument do you make for see for a religionist or a whatever, uh, a God-believing person. A theist. Then it, uh, well, that's another question. Oh, but, is it not theist? Yeah, I'm so, um, yeah, a theist is a person who believes in, in God, in, yeah. in the sense of an external God. So I think you're right there. Now I've lost my train of thought. So oh, I'm sorry. No. I, have, <laughs> I have a train of thought. So, I've derailed. <laughs> so your dad referred earlier to... Well, a, I think he was peeling the onion, and then he was... Oh, like, yeah. The question he was going to ask is, why is anything important? I think there you was, go. That's that what it gets down to, when you keep peeling the onion, yeah. Right. And so I, I would say that I, I have had to get used to the idea that, look, there's a cosmic scale, mm-hmm. and then there's the Johanna scale. And in Jay Hanna's scale, Jay is very concerned about the, the evolved monkeys around him. And he's very concerned about his own evolved monkeyness, you know, and he's very happy to eat breakfast in the morning and not starve to death. That's important. Right. But it's, and that's true. That's not false. That's true. It's also true in a cosmic perspective that we're all infinitely, infinitesimally small things in a blink of space time. And if we never happened, the cosmos doesn't give a crap, and that's true. But to and and I think most religious people hear that and they're like, Wah! "Okay, so I, and, I would and I don't, I, yeah, I would, and I don't. That that doesn't that empowers me. Like I get a sense of, wow, yeah. hey, I can do anything with my life, right? right. I can write that book, right. I can build that car, right. I can run off to Africa and try to help starving people. I can do anything I want. It's energizing to me to know that right. uh, that cosmic perspective exists and is true. But a, a lot, you know, I, I, and that and that's, that, that took a chunk of my 30s, I think, to get to the point where I could hold both of those things in my brain at the same time. Yes, I love my mom and dad. It's true, I do. And yes, from a cosmic perspective, that doesn't matter. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And that's okay. Those things are both true. The cosmic perspective doesn't make Jay's love less true. It doesn't invalidate it. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing to fix. But I think as a younger person, that was hard for me to, you know. So that's, so that's kind of my take on it. You peel the onion back, why is, what's the point? Well, the point yeah. is not heaven. It's not an afterlife. The yeah. point is be nice to each other because we're all here, damn it. Right, and well, and I, I think the the more the frontiers of my theology at this point have to do with with the the issue or the concern that you're raising there, which is, um, I, I'm more and more thinking because God is in and above and around and through all things that God is also evolving as opposed to like a static God. So God is unmovable, unchangeable. A lot of things that you know many 
early Christians would have understood, you know. Um, so what happens if you kind of kick the end out of that can and say, no, God is God and God's very self is evolving to higher levels of organization, higher levels of uh, intricacy, higher levels of love, uh, expression, beauty, wonder, awe, you know, that the God, God's self, like this cosmic force is just, just like the Big Bang, you know, it started out and boom, you know, 18 billion years ago and it's still expanding. So God and God's self, if God's in and above and around about all things, is it possible that God's very self is expanding? Which to me goes back to your question then of your insignificance. That's, in a way, that's true because it's so huge. But in another way, your very being is a part and shapes and without that being, would there would be a diminishment of this ongoing process. So if you decide that you get excited about a project and you create something that hadn't been created before or something like that, that's a part of that whole process. So you, you are integral and essential to that process, even though, like you say, you're like a drop in the ocean. Does that make a drop insignificant? Well, maybe in a way, but on the other hand, all these drops are significant. And if that, if that little particle is not there, if it's missing in its potential, like in other words, if you don't realize your potential, You've diminished yourself, but you've also diminished the ongoing process of life itself. If life is invested and in and above and around all things, then, well, hey. Well, like for me, a drop in the ocean, it's all about scale. And it's all about putting your brain in the context of the question. Mm -hmm. A drop in the ocean. You are that drop in the ocean. Do you care about the drops around you? Yep. That's your whole scope, (laughs) right? That's your thing. Yeah. That's true. A drop in the ocean. From a cosmic perspective, there's a hundred billion, billion, billion planets and you're one drop in the ocean. But still, if, if that drop in the ocean is a fractal of everything else, it's absolutely essential. <laughs> I don't think so. Not from a cosmic perspective. But, but that's I'm not, not sure. No, because wouldn't, wouldn't that, if, if God is evolving and in some way a part of God is diminished, then... Isn't that of significance? I mean, it seems to me like that'd be of infinite significance, so to speak, from one one no, one perspective. Statistically insignificant. <laughs> Statistic, but you're Guaranteed. talking about statistics. I'm talking, about, I'm talking yeah. about relationships. But that's you from know? context, right? So you're talking about relationships on a, the macro scale. The micro scale, sorry. Right. You're talking about when you're that drop of water. Yeah. Isn't important. Yes, right. and it's true. And you don't have to feel bad about the fact that yeah. there also exists another truth. Right. That don't even think about it if it makes you uncomfortable because the, the, so many people, this makes them sad. It makes them feel bad. Insignificant, yeah. It makes them feel like they're a rounding right. error in space-time. Right. Okay, fine. Don't think about it. But for me, it's energizing. It's uplifting. It's like, holy crap, look at this freaking universe. Can you believe this thing? Yeah. Can right. you believe I get to be a part of it yeah, for a amazing. brief instant in time? Wow, that's amazing. What can right. I do? I could jump out of a plane and parasail through whatever I could whatever I mean it's for me it's energizing it's because then you're free if 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 in the cosmic scale it's a drop then there's a freedom there for you is that what you're saying yeah I don't know what that is like I don't know why in my brain that's energizing Hmm. and it's not but because because I've heard it said some people I don't know if anyone this some some people hear that perspective and they're like, oh, fuck it, I can just go shoot sure. up a neighborhood. You know, yeah. why not? I'm yeah. going to go steal a car and right. 
drive it off the... Yeah. And I'm like, what the crap is in your soul? Oh, soul. <laughs> Listen to the atheists talk about souls. <laughs> what is in your... What, what Maybe is, that just means what, more than your head. Why is it, right, that if you had the freedom to do anything, really? Like, if there wasn't a hell to punish you, what right. you want to do is go murder school children? That's what you want to do with that freedom? Really? See, that, that That's question. That's not what I want to do with that freedom. Yeah. I want to, like, you know... Yeah that, yeah, that question is thousands of years old. The Apostle Paul in the Bible writes about this. He, he says, does this mean that because he sort of said, you're, you're at liberty, you're free and everything, does that mean that you then are at liberty to go ahead and do heinous things or something? And then he says, basically, God forbid, you know, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying that you're, you can use this freedom to do fantastic things. If you misuse this freedom, that's not the way it was to be used. So you, you can misuse it. But that's not the promise of the freedom. The pr- promise of the freedom is that you can become more. You can become more fulfilled. You can become more contributive. You can do you know, all that. I feel bad that every time you say things, what I have to do is I have to take my world perspective. And then I have to layer on 90% of this massive hypothesis of this huge infrastructure. I'm trying to, so then mentally I'm trying to, and I'm like, God, that must be exhausting to think there's a God. I just, I don't under, I really don't get it. No, it's it. actually quite energizing. Well, here, let me, <laughs> let me ask you. That's great. I mean, like, and I, I've come to think that we work backwards. Like, I've come to think that my brain didn't analyze this and decide that there's no God. My, I, I think that I just don't find that, like, that idea doesn't help me. That confuses me. The idea of God confuses me in general. And it takes a book like this to get anywhere near an argument that I could even try to go close to. Mm-hmm. Because it addresses a lot of my emotional, you know, monkey brain crap about loving God, omnipotence, stuff, whatever. I think the difference between between you and me, just in our accounts, uh, is that I had this experience at age nine or ten, which really did deeply impact my understanding of who God is. You know, mm-hmm. I wandered away from it and did the agnostic thing for a while and, you know, la-di-da and did the religion thing, you know, and whatever. But, um, so if it is essentially relational, like the shack is basically saying, well, then in order to enter into a relationship, you have to at some point have a sense of trust that that's a relationship that you want, that it would be well-received, you would not be rejected, all these sorts of things. So, um, uh, I was very blessed, I think, to have that experience early on. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know, I do a lot of intellectualizing, but I think at heart, I just have this sense of belovedness because I experienced it. <laughs> and and then as I, as I live <laughs> into that, I experience it deeper and deeper. You know, I mean, I experience it more, more fully. It's more, even more trustworthy than I knew at the time as a nine-year, ten-year-old. Uh, so it just keeps kind of being confirmed. I, I don't know. Yeah, to it, I, I think you guys have this deep sense of love that exists in and throughout all things, or slightly external sometimes, or whatever, that fills you with this thing from the universe. And I, I you know, so, so you, so you make, uh, so to explain that, you have to, you know, have all of these. Uh, uh, what was the term I used earlier? That was the right term. Supernatural. Like, so there's, mm-hmm. well, no, I don't think you guys would call it supernatural because to you, nature is 
that force, which is God, which is love, which is relationship, right? Like those things are all the same thing. So when I say supernatural, I don't think you guys believe in the supernatural. Like I don't, you guys don't, you don't believe that there's the physical universe and then there's this other thing and that's God. No, it's and all you, integrated. Right. So, so like even our view of heaven is kind of down to earth. So very <laughs> down to earth. It's, it's not heaven? going, it's not going well. Heaven, heaven for not. most people is some sort of a other place, you know, whatever however they define it. We, our belief would be more that heaven is going to be here and now not not there then. So right, it's it's, it's, it's the existence of right relationship, right, which starts right in now. tangible form that's here. So yeah, eternal life is not something we're waiting for at the end of the road when we croak. It's, it's something quality. that's right here now. It's quality of life that you can live and enter into fully as 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 you can right this minute. You don't have to die to go to heaven. To, you know, it's kind of like the field of dream. Is this heaven? You know, some some yeah, in some places someone says, no, it's Iowa. But in another place, it says, it's Iowa. And to me, oh, I always thought that was yeah. very interesting because yeah. the one infers, now this ain't heaven, this is just Iowa. Like it's either or. The other one leaves it open and says, is this heaven? This is Iowa. Let you decide. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I suppose, living in heaven right now. I don't, I'm not planning <laughs> to go anywhere. You know, I, so what happens when you die? I don't know. <laughs> And I don't care, you know. I mean, you to me, care. if you have, well, you inherit. If you have, <laughs> if you have a trusting relationship, see, that's that's what I'm talking about all, all morning. Has been, can, it has to do with trust and relationship and interdependence and stuff like that. So, uh, in, in a way, I've lived seven years as of a couple of days ago. You know, I didn't expect to live this long. Every day I'm living right now is like a gift, an unanticipated gift. Really, when I think about it, I, I just. Kind of had this fatalistic view that my daddy died young, my uncle died young, my grandpa died young, never made it past the 40s, you know, into the 40s. I've felt a lot of that since my emergency appendectomy. I'll bet. Mm -hmm. Like, literally, like, holy crap, 50 years ago for the six billion years or whatever Neil deGrasse Tyson says about the how old the universe is. And 14, the last 14 seconds of the 24 hour cycle of the cosmos. That's, that's how long humanity has been around 14 seconds. You would have been dead. I would have been dead. Real dead. Until medicine caught up like 40 years ago. Yeah. My grandpa, your your great grandpa died at age 40 from pneumonia. He probably would not have died of pneumonia in, in our day at, at age 40. I mean, you know, a lot of people die of pneumonia at age 80, but Oof. Okay, we covered religion. Boy, we did. We got that shack thing discussed, didn't we? And we covered politics. Is there anything else other than religion and politics? I don't think there is anything else. Other than just we love you. We love you. Well, I love you guys too. Well, all right. That has never been said on Jay Fox's ignorance. <laughs> it's a good thing. Thank you for bringing this apparatus into our our eating area. Yeah, have fun. Sure. Thanks thank for you for the shack. That with without your uh, forwarding that the audio book to us on our way home from Texas, we probably never would have encountered that. So this is a she good wanted, addition to. She want a good influence you're having on your parents. Well, the three of us need to thank Cervantes for having a 49-hour book that <laughs> I couldn't handle anymore. Well, yeah, my gosh. 
do you, have you ever seen an unabridged dictionary? <coughs> you know, unabridged dictionaries are like that thick, like 50 pounds. Wow. You know, you Next time, I'm going to abridge that sucker. Yeah, for sure. Extra for yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah, it's been fun. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>